Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to Mark chapter 8. If you're new with us, we've been working our way through the book of Mark. We tend to, as we preach here, work our way through books of the Bible, just section by section. So we're up to chapter 8 here. As many of uh, you here know, my, uh, my oldest daughter, Amanda, uh, who is an adult now in, in her 30s, uh, is blind. She was born uh, blind. She had a little sight. She was legally blind, but she had a little sight in one eye and her, her peripheral vision. She would look at you at you at a little pinhole of sight. Um, but when she was 14, she lost that and became profoundly blind. Now, if you n- knew her, Uh, as a child and growing up, you know that really didn't slow her down all that much. And I can remember when she was uh, just a little one and we were living in uh, Australia and she decided she wanted to learn to roller skate. And so we were a little, you know, fearful about this, but we got her some skates and and, uh, with some lessons she picked it up and started skating all over the place. And and, uh, then I came home, uh, uh, I don't know, a few weeks later and she said, Dad, now I want to learn to ride a bike. And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, why don't you talk to your mother about that? Um, no, we, you know, I kept putting it off. I'd come home, she wanted, I think, I don't know how this is going to happen. And uh, so one day I come home, and there she is, riding around on a bike in a circle out on the playground near our house, just saying, look, Dad, I'm riding a bike. And my wife had bought her this little bike. I remember it was called the Rock Crusher. That's what it said on it. And, uh, and she would ride that bike around saying, look out, blind girl on a bike. And she would just barely see things at the last minute and swerve around them. Now, although she was so capable, there were certain things that in reality um, were very hard for her and almost impossible for her to do. For instance, I remember when my wife was trying to teach her geometry. You know, trying to think about shapes and sizes and things that are so visual. It's almost impossible for her. I remember the, the concept of something being far out in the distance and the fact that we could see it. So if we were driving past a lake and we would see an eagle and say, oh, look, there's an eagle. And it, the idea that it was hundreds and hundreds of yards away, but we could see it, she just couldn't, sight for her was about within her reach, right? She just couldn't get her mind around it. The colors and textures of a sunset. See, there there are certain things, physical things, that those kind of realities that she can could not grasp because she cannot see. And there's nothing she could do to change that. She can't make herself see and 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 understand things. She can't make it happen. It would take a miracle for that to happen. And I say this because it reminds me a lot of the situation in our passage this morning. You see, just prior to our text, if you were here with us last week, you know that Jesus has declared his disciples blind, spiritually blind. In verse 18, just before our text, he says this, Having eyes do you not see? You see, at the beginning of the passage of chapter 8 here, he's just fed 4,000 people miraculously. They're out in the desert, and he literally makes bread out of nothing and feeds all of them. And it's a, total, a story that's totally reflective 
of the God of the Old Testament when he, his people are in the desert and he brings them manna from heaven and feeds them. And they don't seem to get it. And the thing is, it's the second time that he's done it, right? Just a few chapters earlier, he fed the 5,000. Yet his disciples, in verse 14 of our text, right after this has happened, get in a boat, they don't have any bread, and they start arguing about it because they're worried that they're not going to have enough bread. And Jesus says in verse 17, look at chapter 8, verse 17, aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? They are blind to who Jesus really is. They don't get it. It's amazing, if you've been reading through this book, that, that they don't. You're kind of flabbergasted. You're like, they've watched him heal the, a paralytic. Guy who couldn't walk, just give him legs. Cleanse a leper of his leprosy, gone. Cast thousands of demons out of a man. Restore a man with a withered arm right in front of him. Bring the arm back. Even bring Jairus' daughter back from the yet dead. Yet they don't understand. They're excited. They're following him, but they don't get it. You see this theme all the way through the book. And if, you if, you, if you want to trace it with me, look at chapter 4, verse 13. Their, their lack of understanding just keeps coming up. Chapter 4, verse 13, when he's teaching them in parables. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? They don't understand what he's teaching them. Chapter 6, verse 52. When, when he's uh, just fed the 5,000 and then he walks across the water to their boat, it says, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They had no spiritual understanding. Chapter 7, verse 14. It's when he called the people together um, and he's talking about sin and they don't understand. And then in verse 18, he said to them, then are you also without understanding? He turns to his disciples, are you also without understanding? And then, of course, right before our text, verse 21, and he said to them, do you not yet understand? It's shocking. You think, as a reader... How are these guys ever going to get it? What will it take for them to really see who Jesus is? But it's not just shocking, it's also kind of a warning for us. You see, like the disciples, we can have all the evidence there right before us. We can be familiar with Jesus and his teachings. And even really like him and want to follow him. And not really get who he is. Not really see him. Not really know him. You see, this means that growing up in church, around all the Christian stuff, going to Christian school, having a Christian family, having theological knowledge, reading Christian books, being here today, is no guarantee that you truly see Jesus. That you really know him. The disciples were actually with him in these events and they couldn't see him. You see, not only may you be very unclear, but your understanding might be completely warped of who he is, so you don't see and know Jesus. And Jesus says something about this blurry spiritual state 
He says it's very dangerous to be in this confused state where you think you know him and you kind of like him, and, but you don't really get it. He says it's very precarious. He says to them last week, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Pharisees and Herod, they, both, they all hated Jesus and rejected him. And he said, this blurriness you guys have, it's like a little piece of leaven in the dough, that, that yeast that goes all the way through. It can, it can produce a hard-hearted rejection of Jesus. It's kind of like you're following Jesus, but you have this kind of false view of who he is. And then as it becomes clear, you go, wait, no, I, don't, I didn't sign up for that. And you reject him. It's very dangerous. So the question still stands, what does it take? What will it take for the disciples to see? It seems hopeless. How can their eyes be opened to truly understand who Jesus is? Well, that's what's exciting about our text this morning, because if you noticed it, somebody comes to see right in the middle of our text. Somebody gets it for the first time. Look at verse 27 with me again. And Jesus went with his disciples to a village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. These are all the answers that people give today. Or He's a Bible teacher. He's a prophet. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him. You are the Christ. Peter, for the first time, gets it. He looks at Jesus and said, you are the Christ. That's that title, the the anointed king Messiah. God save your king, predicted by the prophets. The one all Israel has been looking for. It's like he goes, you're the Christ. It's a huge moment. It's a turning point for Peter, but it's also a turning point in this whole book. If you remember, the very first verse of the book, it's kind of the theme statement for the uh, book. Chapter 1, verse 1, Mark says, this is the beginning of the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He's going to tell us in this book, he's going to show us that Jesus is the Christ and that he's the Son of God. And here's the first person in the book to go to get it, to go, you're the Christ. Demons have recognized Jesus before, but this is the very first person. Peter gets it. He is the Christ. But the question, of course, is how did this happen? Just a paragraph before, Jesus is saying, you're blind, Peter. Peter doesn't get it at all. He's arguing about bread. And suddenly he goes, you're the Christ. What happened? Well, that's what's, uh, that's what's pretty exciting about this book. Because Peter, I mean, Mark, shows us, first and foremost, how one comes to see Jesus. And the first point is that it's a gracious work of God. Look what Mark does. In between Peter being completely without understanding and not understanding and him suddenly coming to see who Jesus is, Mark tells us a story in verse 22 about a blind man from Bethsaida. And we see in this story that coming to see Jesus is a gracious work of God. Let's read that story again. Look at it. And they came to Bethsaida 
And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter a village. It's, a, it's kind of a strange story. Jesus spitting uh, and you know, putting it on his eyes. You, go, you read that and you go, what's that about? And then sending him home says, don't tell anybody. You go, what's that about? But here's the simple point that we shouldn't miss. How does this man come to sight? How are his eyes literally opened? How does it happen? Jesus does it. It's a miracle of God. Jesus takes him by the hand, leads him out of the village, and he intercedes and restores his sight. And it's a picture, isn't it? Mark does this all the time. He gives us these physical illustrations of his spiritual truth. It's a physical illustration of how Peter came to suddenly have his eyes open to see Jesus, to grasp who he is. It was a miracle. Jesus opened his eyes. If you're not sure about it, look at the Gospel of Matthew because he actually says that. This is of God. And if you think I'm overdrawing the parallel a little bit between this physical blind man from Bethsaida, where was Peter from? Bethsaida. We have two blind men from Bethsaida. Two blind men who Jesus opens their eyes. You see, Peter couldn't open his own spiritual eyes any more than this blind man physically could open his own eyes. He couldn't just be, hey, here's more evidence, Peter. Here's more proof, and then he'll figure it out. That couldn't happen. He couldn't just read some book on apologetics and, and, and suddenly understand. Someone couldn't argue him into it. He needed the gracious, healing touch of God. And I want to say this morning that we need to realize that this picture that he paints here is a picture of every single one of us. The Bible says that all of us were born blind, like my daughter. But we were born spiritually blind because of sin. We're hardened to God. The eyes of our heart are darkened, the Bible says. Because we turned away, we will not see him, and we cannot. So if you're a Christian here today, what you need to realize, it's not because you were smarter than all the rest of your friends and figured it out. No, it's not how it happened. It's not because you read enough Christian books and then you realized. No, it's because God graciously had mercy on you and opened your eyes to see him. It's because Jesus, like he did with this blind man in this village, took you by the hand and led you to restoration. I mean, think when he took my hand, he was dragging me. He did a miracle in your life. That's how it happened. Now, the implications of this are, are huge, right? When you think about evangelism, you think about sharing the gospel, you think about discipleship. 
And we'll get to some of those at the end. But first, I want us to notice another very important thing about this physical healing story about this blind man from Bethsaida. What is weird about this story? Don't be afraid to yell it out. What's weird about this story? He spits on his, uh, touches him. What? He has to do it twice. When I was a kid, I was always like, man, Jesus just didn't sleep well the night before, I think. He was struggling here, and he gave it his best shot, and then he was like, oh, wait a minute, you know, one more time, focus. And then he got it. Is that what happened? No, in fact, you notice Jesus asks him after the first time, what do you see? See, he knows. He's purposely doing this in two stages. It's, it's a lesson. It's an illustration, isn't it? Of how people come to see. Restoration of sight in one's life, spiritually coming to really, to, to really see Jesus, doesn't always happen all at once. It's a process. It often happens in stages in our life as Jesus leads us to healing and opens our eyes. This is a truth that I think we struggle with. Because we want to be able to point to some certain time and, and place where we made a decision and we kind of brought ourselves to see. Gives us a sense of control. But this is about God's sovereign control. His timing. His grace. His process. His work in our lives in His way. This idea of this process of kind of at least two stages or a couple stages is bolstered in what happens with Peter almost immediately, right? After this revelation where he's like, you're the Christ, what happens next? Look at it, verse 31, let's read it. This is exactly what happened next. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and says, of course, Jesus, you're the Christ. You would know. No. What does it say? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting them on your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. G. Peter sees that Jesus is the Christ but he doesn't see fully yet, does he? He has this idea of the Christ in his head already. He's a figure, a powerful figure who will, who will bring victory for his people, who will conquer the Romans so they will reign, who will cleanse the temple and kick out the Gentiles. But Jesus is talking about suffering and dying and being rejected. Not that victory isn't coming, notice the rising after three days. But first, Jesus is saying, no, there's rejection and suffering along the way. Jesus is talking about the path to the cross, and Peter rebukes him. No, Jesus, you got it wrong. You don't understand. You see, where is Peter in the seeing process? Where's he at? Think of the analogy. What does he see? He sees trees walking. He is not clear. He doesn't fully get it. He needs more healing and clarity. He needs to see the cross of Christ. 
to really get it. You see, coming to Jesus to see him and seeing him fully is a gracious work of God. That's a process, but it's also a process of embracing the cross. We cannot fully see Jesus. We cannot understand who he is. We cannot really know him if we won't embrace the rejection and shame and humility of the cross. This is the sticking point for Peter. He says, no, Jesus, I see you're the Christ, but no, 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 not that. You're not going to die. That's not what it's about. He wants to see Jesus through this image he already has of victory and prosperity of relief for his people, and thus the shameful cross does not fit. And you know, I think that when we look at Peter, we tend to kind of think, you know, Peter, that guy, what's wrong with him? I mean, why can't he see it? It's, it's so obvious. Why can't he see the truth? Because we're so used to the, of course Jesus died on the cross, he's going to go to the cross. We wear crosses on little necklaces, we have them on our bullets, and we, we know that's what it's all about. Remember, this is the, a new concept. This is the first time. The truth is, this sticking point for Peter of the cross is actually the sticking point for every single one of us. Notice what Jesus does when he responds to Peter in verse 33, when he starts to respond. Look at the very beginning of it. But turning and seeing his disciples. So he's, he turns to speak to Peter, but he turns and he looks at all the disciples because he's like, this is the issue for everybody. This is the issue for all of you. It's the issue for us. We all get stuck at this point. We want to reshape Jesus in an image that we have in our heads that's just easier and more pleasant and more acceptable, that doesn't carry the implications of the cross for our lives, the shame and the suffering and the struggle. That's what we do. This is why theologians today, so many theologians are trying to write the, the atonement work on the cross right out of the Jesus equation. They say, oh, that sacrifice idea, that's, that's kind of archaic and barbaric. You know, that's from, you know, ancient uh, stories of human sacrifice. I mean, God would never do that. That's cosmic child abuse. How could he put his son on the cross? They, they have all this stuff to kind of push that aside. It's all about love, really. This is why churches and Christians are constantly trying to sort of refocus and rebrand Jesus and his message. They say, hey, Jesus, who is Jesus? Jesus is our, he's our life blesser. He wants you to have an abundant, prosperous life. There's books after books written on this. And there's truth in it. He does bring blessing. So we sort of focus in and we want to make that the center. It's so much more positive and push the cross to the side. We say, Jesus, Jesus is the marriage and family protector. I like this one personally. I like marriage and family. Those are good things. And Jesus is pro-marriage and family. So it's easy to focus there and make it the center. Our culture likes that. Everybody likes marriage and family. Jesus is our one that, you know, for our empowerment, for health and well-being. After all, look at all the people he heals. So we have Christian healing centers all about that or we say look jesus is love he's the ultimate expression of love true he is love 
But then we say, and, and thus he accepts everybody exactly as they are. Not true. Because that would be to leave us blind and hard-hearted and stuck in our sin. And there's no love in that. You see, we want to reshape Jesus and push the cross to the side, even out of the big picture, because it's a hard reality. It's what Peter's doing. He's saying, no, no, Jesus, you're about this. You see, the cross, it constantly confronts us with the ugliness of our sin and our need for repentance and our inability to do anything to fix ourselves, just like that blind man. It necessitates total reliance and faith on Jesus for salvation in our place. We struggle with that. The cross must be the focus of our Christian lives, and we, we come back to every day if we want to see and know Jesus for who he really is in a real way. This is why the Apostle Paul, when he talks about this gospel, what's his shorthand for the gospel? Is it, hey, let me tell you about Christ and his love? No. Let me tell you about Christ and family life? No. Let me tell you about Christ and the power of living? No. What is it? Christ and him crucified. That's what he says. Christ and him crucified. It's a shorthand way of talking about the good news of Jesus. Christ and him crucified. And I want to say, you guys, it's not a little thing to get off the mark on this. You know, to say, to start focusing on, well, we'll just kind of reshape and focus on unity or acceptance or empowerment or victory, all these true things of Jesus. We say, what's the big deal? just a little off, and we're focusing on something a little more positive. It's not a little thing. What does Jesus say to Peter as Peter does this? What does Jesus say to Peter when he says, well, no, it's not really about the cross, it's about this. What does he say? Does he say, hey, Peter, you're a little off, don't worry about it. No, he says, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He says, this is, this is satanic, Peter. This is what Satan wants. He wants us focusing on the things of men, on the easier things, on the comfortable worldly distractions in a Christianized form that actually leads people away from the place of salvation, from the cross of Christ. He would have us look anywhere else so we don't truly see Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, as we think about this passage, where we are at, in a sense, on the seeing Jesus spectrum. I was thinking about that as a church. Where are we at? As we head into the rest of 2021, are we seeing clearly are we keeping the cross central in all we do and in our teaching? Are we getting sidetracked to all these other good things? Let me tell you, the reason that we preach expositionally here through books of the Bible is because it helps us stay on the cross, because the scriptures do. You read through the Apostle Paul, he just keeps bringing it back to the cross. You read the Gospels, they lead to the cross. You read the Old Testament, it's all on a trajectory to the cross. The whole sacrificial system is, isn't it? We stay and we read through the scriptures as they are. It'll keep us seeing, focusing where we should to see Jesus. 
Let me tell you, we want to keep on that as a church. But we also need to think each individually and personally. Where are you at in seeing Jesus, the real Jesus? Are you clear? Maybe you're orthodox in your doctrine. Who's Jesus? Oh, he's the Christ. But in your life, are you foggy when it comes to Jesus? Are you seeing trees walking? Because you're sidetracked and distracted by all these good Christian things and ideas that have put you off center. You know, seeing Jesus clearly as we embrace the cross is a constant process in our lives. And I think we tend to go in and out of focus. It's not that we just suddenly see Jesus clearly when we come to salvation and we get it. We have to keep coming back. We keep getting out of focus. This is why I had Ephesians 1, that prayer in Ephesians 1 read. What is Paul praying there? He's praying about these Christians in their church that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. That they would see fully the revelation of him. Coming back into focus and seeing Jesus clearly. You know, we are in a, a season right now in our country. So many distractions. There's so much noise out there. So much going on. Where I see Christian brothers and sisters getting sidetracked from the cross making certain political agendas the, the central focus because it seems important and everybody's digging in and taking their sides. I see Christians confusing standing for civil liberties with standing for the gospel as if they're the same thing. I see Christians dividing over these. Are you seeing Jesus clearly? Where's your focus? And if you're unsure whether you're seeing him clearly, clearly if, you're, if you're saying, I don't really know, maybe, maybe I am kind of just seeing trees walking, I'm not sure. I want you to look at the final aspect of, of having your eyes opened, of seeing Jesus, what happens with Peter here. Look, look at verse 34 with me and let's read it. Let's read the rest of this passage. It says, and he called to him the crowd. So now Jesus, he went from Peter to looking at the disciples, and now he calls the whole crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with his holy angels. There's tons you could unpack there, but the main point is obvious. Seeing Jesus clearly is not only a, a gracious process of God, not only demands that we embrace the cross, it demands a life dedicated to the gospel. If you see him clearly, he's saying, you will proclaim me clearly. A life that sees the cross so clearly that it follows that same path 
giving and living sacrificially that others may see Jesus, so that others may come to the cross. A life that lets go of all the distractions so as to clearly and unashamedly proclaim Jesus and his gospel, even if it means suffering, even if it means scorn and shame, even if it means death. That's what he's saying here. Take up your cross and follow me. You see, often I think that when we try to reshape Jesus in our view, in a way that's, you know, maybe more about victory or more about empowerment or more about healing, and so it kind of pushes the cross to the side. Do you know why we do that? Because we think we're saving our lives. Right? The world is going to come down on us for this offensive gospel. So if I could just tweak it a bit this way or tweak it a bit that way, I feel so much more accepted and embraced. People love family stuff, and they love victory stuff. Life is good. I'm saving my life. But Jesus says, actually, you're losing it. If we lose the cross, we lose our life. That's where our lives are gained in Christ. If we won't proclaim Jesus and him crucified, then we don't really clearly see who he is. And he'll be ashamed of us when he comes. And you know, this taking up the cross call here, this kind of standing for him call, it, it can sound sort of like, oh, he, I, I guess I got to sell everything and head off to the mission field and, and, you know, and, and be a martyr for Jesus. But that's not really what it might be. But that's not really. Look, look Jesus is speaking to the whole crowd. Speaking to fishermen and doctors and everybody that's there. People from all over, all kinds of vocations, even the disciples. You see, it's about living and speaking clearly for him and his gospel right where you are. Because you see him clearly. And you see what he did for you at the cross clearly. So you proclaim his gospel. Even as suffering and persecution come, it's what you do if you see Jesus. So the question for all of us, again, comes back to, are we seeing Jesus clearly? And again, if you're not sure, what I would say is that you should pray. Because first and foremost, having your eyes opened is a gracious work of God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that although we have turned from you in our sin and thus entered into our self-imposed blindness, that you have mercy, that you reach down, that you take a hold of our lives, that you bring us to see. Lord, I pray that you would help us to daily Come to your cross to refocus that as a church we would be coming and focused, understanding what your son has done on the cross for us. And that individuals would be coming daily in repentance and faith. And in the joy of our salvation that we find through your son's work on the cross. We pray these things in his powerful name. Amen.